Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Media Sport podcast series. I'm excited to say that joining me via Skype is Ben Carrington from the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California in the US. A great many people listening will know Ben's research and understand the significance of his sociological scholarship on race, identity, sports, Marxism and cultural studies, with the influential figure of Stuart Hall featuring throughout. He's the author and an editor of books such as Race, Sport and Politics, The Sporting Black Diaspora, published by Sage, Marxism, Cultural Studies and Sport, co-edited with Ian MacDonald and published by Routledge, and A Companion to Sport, co-edited with David L. Andrews and published by Wiley Blackwell. Ben's books, articles and chapters are widely cited and reviewed, and like all good researchers, provoke a range of responses. A peek at Ben's website, which can be found at bencarrington.com, reveals that a right-wing website once criticised him for being, quote, a typical academic that inserts two parts race and one part gender into every issue with a twist of marks, end quote. It's the description he likes, and in my mind anyway, it's hard to understand how that's in fact a criticism. It's also hard to understate the relevance of Ben's analyses and writing at this moment in time, given the charged politics of sport, race, nationalism, multiculturalism, and the swirling debates and controversies that flow through and between these issues in many countries around the world, including the US, UK, Australasia, in many parts of Europe, including France and Poland. One need only to observe the rantings of US President Donald Trump on Twitter about NFL player protests during the national anthem, or the NBA's LeBron James referring to Trump quite accurately as a bum. These are events that speak to the racially structured history and politics of modern sport and the inequalities and exploitation that give them shape. Ben is someone who we need to be reading and listening to, which is why I've invited him to speak with me. Ben, thanks for joining me for the Media Sport podcast series. Uh, delighted to join you, Brett. Thanks for having me. Growing up in South London in the UK, you once had aspirations to play for Liverpool FC, now in the English Premier League. Um, and I might add, you were certainly a very talented footballer. Now, why Liverpool and what role did this dream play in the development of your work and thinking about the relationship between sport, culture and identity? Um, it's, it's a good question. Um, autobiography is a very unreliable form of narration, so um, I'm a bit loath to um, pin too much on my earlier sports identifications, but um, you're quite right, as a, as a youth I had the good fortune to uh, end up supporting Liverpool Football Club. Um, I was born in the early 70s, so the 70s through the 80s were the, kind of the, the, the heyday, the, the, the period when Liverpool were the best football team in England and arguably Europe and maybe even the world a, a push. Um, but I was actually born in London, South London, so my, my local team uh, who I played for as a youth was Cholton Athletic. And of course, within working class cultures, you're supposed to support the team that's you know, local to you. Um, and normally, that, I guess that kind of happens in kind of very patriarchal ways that, you know, that the son adopts the, the team of the father and, and that tends to be the, you know, the, the local team. Um, I guess as I was brought up in a single parent household and my mum wasn't really into sports, uh, my uncles and my granddads became 
the kind of um, sporting father figures for me, I guess. So when it came time to choose uh, my football team, um, the Carringtons were actually from Norfolk. So on, on my mum's side, on, on the Carrington side, uh, my granddad supported Norwich, of course. Um, and I had three uncles. One supported Everton, one supported West Ham, and one supported Liverpool. Luckily for me, my favourite uncle supported Liverpool. So I ended up choosing... <laughs> Uh, for no other reason than my favourite uncle supported Liverpool, Liverpool. And probably it was linked to the fact that my favourite colour at the time was red. So uh, given Liverpool's uh, strip, I ended up supporting Liverpool and um, and I was very lucky to do so. At least in that time, the past 10, 15, 20 years have been a bit more painful. I've, and I've lost many bets to my Manchester United friends over the years and I've stopped betting. Um, but maybe this will be the year where Klopp can bring us back some glory. So that was a kind of personal side. And I guess kind of framing it more analytically, um, I was aware from a very early age of the passions and the kind of emotional attachments, if you like, the kind of, uh, although I clearly wouldn't have put it in those in these terms when I was young, but the kind of affective politics of sports, I think is profoundly important. And so, you know, the, the, who you supported, and especially, I think, for working class men, um, you know, the kind of whole discourse around how you identify with each other, how you bond, how you form relationships was, was very much structured in and around sports and, and, and football in particular coming from, from the UK. So um, to this day, you know, red remains my favourite colour and Liverpool are no longer quite the team that they were. Um, but I... But it also, I guess, it also highlighted some of the contradictions around identity and identification, that these things aren't necessarily kind of fixed in, in, in an easy way. So you know, the fact that I was a, a black South Londoner who in his youth played for Charlton Athletic, but have always supported Liverpool, I think has always kind of indicated to me that we need to be cautious about those who claim uh, any kind of easy correspondence between our social location and our identifications. They're always, you know, fraught with biographical and um, kind of, you know, um, uh, just just kind of happenstance uh, circumstances, which kind of um, makes the world socially complex and, and all the more interesting for it. And you play with these tensions and complexities in your book, Race, Sport and Politics, in which you make the case for the key role of sport in the making of race and of race in the structuring of sport and sporting cultures over time, which of course intersect with, as you've already said, issues such as, you know, class. And we could throw into that, you know, everything from ethnicity to race. Could you explain the argument you were making around that, the making of race and the role race plays in sport for listeners, please? Yeah, so I guess, I mean, just just to put the book into context very briefly, I guess there there were... three frustrations that I had with the academic literatures that I was reading and that I am interested in. So as someone who studied sports studies as an undergraduate at Loughborough University, I was very fortunate to be trained by some of the leading sports sociologists at the time, people like uh, Joseph Maguire and the leisure studies theorist Ian Henry. Um, When I was introduced to the the critical body of work on, on sports, I found it frustrating that they would, there was a kind of neglect of questions around race and racialization. Um, so, you know, the work around gender and sports was very well developed with people like Jennifer Hargreaves and people like Michael Mesner. There was obviously the critical scholarship around sports and class, 
with people like Rick Renault, the communication scholar from Canada, um, John Hargreaves in the UK, people like Chas Critcher, who was um, a member of the Centre for Contemporary Cultures. But I didn't, I, I found that the when it came to questions of race, race was treated in a kind of perfunctory manner. So I guess one of the things I was trying to do with race, sports and politics was to make a theoretical intervention into the critical work around sports, the social just sports and, and theorising around sports and society to kind of say that, no, that the sports and questions of race are constitutive in terms of how we understand the emergence of sport in the, in the modern world. So that was one intervention. The second was that cultural studies, and I think you know, still today has kind of neglected sports for various reasons. And black cultural studies in particular, even though black cultural studies, and I'm thinking of the work of people like Paul Gilroy and Kabina Mercer and a number of the, the, the American scholars, took popular culture seriously and interrogated the, the complexities of racial formation in and through popular culture. They tended to focus on television or film or, or, or more often than not music. Like music is almost paradigmatic when we think about black cultural studies. And sports again was kind of neglected. So the theorists who I was drawing upon who did take race and popular culture seriously tended to neglect sports and similarly within a critical scholarship on race, and this would be I guess the third area. Um, you know, the, the, the major race theorists, people like you know, Patricia Collins or Joe Fagan or um, 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 Howard Wynan and, and Michael Omi, etc. Many of those sociologists never really took sports seriously as, as an object for critical analysis. So part of the intention of the book was to kind of say that sports matters to the critical race theorists and we need to theorize race more complexly to the sports studies theorists. Then beyond that, of course, so of course, I'm not the first person to kind of think about these conjunctures, but one of my other frustrations was that when we tended to think about the race and sport conjuncture or the intersections between race, sports and society, more often, more often than not, we tend to focus on the impact of racism in sports. You know, so in the, in the, in the, throughout the 70s and in the 80s, there were a whole series of studies on stacking, you know, the disproportionate numbers of black players playing in certain positions linked to stereotypes, or we'd look at forms of racial discrimination within sports organizations, um, or forms of racist abuse, you know, directed at, at black players or other uh, other players of color. Uh, and this was all important work and scholarship, and, I, and I've, I've written some of that work myself. But what I was trying to do, and then this refers back to your question, is to, rather than just think about the ways in which racism impacts into the world of sports, could we, could we reverse that and think about the, the productive role of sports in the remaking of race more generally? In other words, think about sports as being productive in some ways in terms of changing and challenging how we understand race more generally and not being a mere kind of um, depository, if you like, for wider discourses of race. So I think that that's what the book attempts to do, because if that is the case, that sport is generative in terms of reshaping how we understand race, then you, then if you're interested in questions of race and racism and racialization as a scholar, then you have to take sport seriously. You have to at least engage with the problematic of sport. Um, so I think that's really was the, one of the main key motivations behind the book. And sitting within it, and I think a lot of your scholarship, um, is a a sympathy for a Marxist perspective and indeed the, the deployment of it. You've, you've of course edited a book um, dealing with the role of you know, sport and Marxism and culture. And of course Marx and Marxism in its various forms has been making a comeback in recent years. 
Um, what does a Marxist-influenced approach, or indeed Marx, uh, have to offer us in understanding or analysing sport at this moment in time? I, I think it's indispensable. I, I don't know how you can do any serious work on sports right now that doesn't at some stage in analysis grapple with the question of class, um, consider the impact of forms of political economy that doesn't at some stage think through questions of consumption and identity and of course production. Um, so to, to put it reductively, there is no serious analysis of sports that isn't at some stage indebted to, engaged with, and in conversation with Marxism. But that's the easy part. But the question then, and I think there are no ways in which we could you quite easily substantiate that, and, I, and most serious analyses would probably acknowledge that. The, the, the key question is what type of Marxism are we drawing upon? And I mean, I'm, I'm not a scholar of Marx per se, although I read biographies of Marx and I'm interested in Marx as, as a historical figure and as an intellectual. But I think trying to grapple with you know, the, the, one of the basic questions of determination, you know, to what extent does political economy and, and class formations determine the, the wider social forces and, and therefore you know, the, the kind of, not just the structures of sports, but the meanings of sports and, and, and why people play sports and questions of, you know, going back to my earlier point about the, the, uh, the effective dimension of sports. How do you understand questions around joy and desire and fantasy and pleasure? Um, and often I think there's, there's a, that's where we maybe come up to the, some of the limits of certain types of orthodox Marxism. But the analysis has to be in conversation with Marx uh, the whole time. And I think in many ways, given my, my background in and early intellectual formation through cultural studies, and, cult, you, I, I, and especially British cultural studies, and there were clearly many different formations of cultural studies in different parts of the globe at different moments. But at least as regards to British cultural studies, now it was from it, its inception a quarrel with orthodox Marxism. This is what Raymond Williams and, and Stuart Hall and, and E.P. Thompson to, you know, as well and others were engaged in is how to construct and to produce a more critical, sensitive and complex theory of culture that um, centers class antagonisms and class contestations within that analysis. But, but in, in, the, in you know, Stuart Hall would say, um, you know, in the final analysis, it doesn't kind of result back to a kind of easy explanation that this is all simply to do with kind of class formations. And so um, I think much of my work and the work I think is most interesting, um, you know, is, 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 is precisely grappling with the limits of Marx's analysis, what it opens up and what it explains and what it doesn't. But it, it has to be central to, to the discussion because if it isn't, um, to my mind, that there's there's a kind of we, we've moved too far into the kind of post-Marxist, you know, um, dematerial discussions, which I find ultimately are unsatisfactory. You work in a, a school for communication and journalism, and and running throughout um, much of your research is either an explicit or in, or implicit engagement with media in its various forms. How do you balance, say, you know, it, it may be in the structuring of class or race or cultural politics or, or, or formal politics, 
But how do you balance sort of the, the, the role of both digital media and mass communications and how, when, when you're actually going about your research? It, it depends where the work and the arguments lead me. So, so for example, some of my work, you know, so I, I did my PhD in the mid-1990s um, uh, on, on a black cricket team in Leeds, in Chap- Chapeltown, Leeds. And that was a, a fairly classic ethnographic sociological project in which you do a kind of a community-based study and I've been working on that on that on that very study for the, for the past um, 20 years in fact and I'm still writing uh, this what I'm now calling a slow ethnography um, and in, in, in that sense that 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 project is more clearly identified I would say as a kind of a sociological project which is interested in, and, and the methods that I would use for that would be you know participant observation uh, interviews um, and so I, so, so, the, so all of our relationships are mediated, of, of course, but the, the media per se isn't foregrounded in, in that type of research. And then at the same time, you know, uh, much of my research and, and race, sport and politics to a large degree is interested in the mass media, in advertising, in discourse analysis. I think that type of work, which is perhaps more influenced by my culture choice background, um, it engages in the media both in terms of form and content. Um, but I also think that there's no, there is a big shift taking place right now within sports scholarship. I think, you know, just to push the argument a, a bit more, if you think about the changes that have been brought about by esports, I think m- many of these new ways in which sports are being consumed and produced and understood beyond the traditional ways in which we think about you know, physical bodies in motion, you know, actual human beings. Um, and the development of you no know, virtual reality of other social media platforms. I think this is this is we're in a hugely disruptive moment within the sports media economy as a whole, and the ways in which maybe some of us who have tried to you know think and grapple with sports um, have to kind of rethink some of those earlier discussions. You know that those of us that, that have uh, you know, taught and, and were educated within sports studies you know, around the distinction between kind of play, games and sports, I think that's what one of the things that, that, that kind of esports movement does is to kind of take us back to some of those kind of foundational questions about what is sport and what are the delimitations of sports. And therefore, you know, who do we include and exclude um, both in our definitions and therefore within our analyses? You grew up, uh, completed your much of your education in the UK, but you've also lived in the US since the mid-2000s. Uh, how is living on both sides of the Atlantic shaped the way you think about sport, race, and identity? It, it certainly changed some of my conceptual schemas, or at least the kind of range of cultural and the- theoretical references that we might draw upon. Um, you know, and it and it has produced within me a kind of. Uh, intellectual outsider position which i think is really productive sociologically even if personally that can often be a, a bit of a, a, a difficult situation to kind of find yourself in um so so just very briefly then i'd say that i in coming in leaving the uk and i taught at brighton university for, for many years um with a whole range of important sports study scholars people like alan tomlinson and john subden the philosopher Graham mcphee um, scholars like Belinda Wheaton and, and Dean McDonald, uh, among many others. Um, I think in coming to the US and moving to Austin, Texas, and again, this is one of the, 
things that's kind of difficult to kind of generalize about the US because it's so, you know, it's a cliche, but it's true. It's such a big country, you know, and um, I don't need to be explaining that to an Australian audience. Um, you know, it has different time zones and, it, and it's only when you're here, you really get a sense of the vastness of, of the US and the fact that, you know, in many ways, I think the US doesn't really exist. You know, it, it's true that all national identities are imagined, but I think the US is more imagined than others. Um, the, the, I think the civil institutions here are very weak. The public sphere is fragmented. Um, it, it lacks the kind of grounding and the kind of the, the solidifying effect that, you know, just to take the UK example, something like the BBC or the National Health Service helps to cement a collective sense of national identity around certain either symbols or social and civic institutions. The US lacks those complete, almost completely. And so in that, with maybe the exception of the military operating symbolically and you see a lot of you know support our troop signs and the kind of the fetishization of the military in the US is, is quite um, um, stark and, and quite uh, disturbing to many of us who kind of understand the, the kind of perils of, of militarism. militarism. Um, so I think coming to the US, you know, that's, that's the first thing, it's a very big place and I haven't lived in the US, I lived in Austin, Texas. Um, the, you know, the comparison I often give to friends in, in England when they say, so what's it like living in America? I say, well, that's a bit like saying, what's it like to live in Europe? You know, like living in Moscow and Berlin is pretty different as, as is living in Burnley and Paris. You know? So it depends you know, whereabouts you're situated. Being in Austin and in Texas meant that I became much more tuned to the politics of Central and South America, uh, much more tuned to questions around the Latinization of, of US politics and kind of racial relations. Um, and, and, and more of a, an interest in some of the Latin American kind of scholars uh, who have been engaged in certain types of decolonial politics and theorizing, of which I wasn't really that aware when I first moved to um, to, to, to the US. Um, I The other part of it, I guess, kind of becomes very apparent. I, I remember for many years when I would go to the North American Society for the Social Just Sport Annual Conference, or NAS, as we refer to it, and I was always struck by how often US-based scholars would, would study college sports. And I'm coming from the UK and I, and I went to Loughborough University and, you know, so sure there's the Oxford Cambridge boat race, you know, and occasionally some of the university teams might appear on, on the sports media, but it doesn't, it never figured prominently. And I was just aghast at how much time and effort scholars would give to college sports. And it's only when you're in the US and you spend time at a major US university, you realize the centrality of college sports to the, to the national sports media landscape here. And, and the huge amount of money that, that is involved. So I guess part of it is I've become more interested by default in being in the US in the politics of college sports and some of the, the contradictions there. And UT Austin, where I was previously, is one, is one of the biggest sports, college sports um, um, uh, universities. You know, it has it, The budget is close to $200 million a year in revenue for college sport for one university. Um, it's absolutely incredible that the football stadium holds 100,000. Um, and I've now moved to the University of Southern California, USC in Los Angeles, which similarly has a huge sports program. Um, so I, I guess that's one of the things that's kind of like struck me in thinking about the, the society as a whole and kind of sports and races, the, the centrality of, of college sports, which is very different in, in, in much of the rest of the world. Um, I'd say as well, it's also given me a different perspective on, on the UK. I, I find myself now going back to the UK and listening to some of the discussions there um, with, with maybe with a different kind of lens and just like the language that's used to discuss you know, racial politics and, and class politics. So um, 
the deeply embedded nature of class hierarchies. Um, you know, it's, it was, it's not that that observation was new to me, but you see it in a much starker way when you're outside the UK and you go back and you see that the, the stultifying grip of institutions like Oxbridge on every single aspect of kind of British educational, political, cultural life. Um, so I think you know, those those that kind of shift backwards and forwards um, has really improved. You know, as C. White Mills would refer to it, you know, my, my social imagination is, is much sharper, I think, as a result of, of being a Brit living in the US and then traveling back for two to three months every year back, back to the UK. Sport and race, I'm at the center of national, international news coverage of US politics, and US politics, of course, being a diverse matter depending on where you are in the country, but I think it's been given a particular focus by the US president at the moment, Donald Trump. And it's also connected with the, the, an increasing level of activism among many athletes, and the obvious one being ex-NFL player Colin Kaepernick, but also football's Megan Rapinoe, Olympic fencer Ittapahaj Muhammad. Um, and I've also heard you speak on uh, Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast about these issues or, or ones related to them. What's the political significance of this upsurge in athlete activism, resistance and intersectional politics through sport in your mind? Uh, we're, we're in the midst of it right now, so it's actually it's difficult to tell, but it, it it does appear that we are in a genuinely new moment. And I think, you know, the, trying to map new moments, shifts in, in the social landscape is, is, you know, is fraught with, with misdiagnoses. I mean, and especially when it's in your area of research, you know, everyone says, well, this is, the, this is a, a really new and significant moment in the human history. It just so happens to be the area that I research, and therefore <laughs> my work's important. People should hire me to... to to teach it and to speak about it, like, <laughs> I, you know, like some of us, you know, you know, yourself included, and many others have been have made the arguments for many years that that sports and politics are deeply interconnected. Like just just that basic point has been highly contested. It tends to be dismissed. If you, <clears throat> when I would tell people that I'm a sociologist, I mean, I, there's one of the difficulties, I guess, of being a sociologist is that no one really knows what you do outside of academia. You know, so if you, you know, I always refer to the kind of the the, the pain of, of the of the, you know, the dinner party moment when someone asks what I do and I tell them that I'm an academic and I'm a sociologist. And if you if you say you're a historian, everyone gets you study history. You know, they, they don't you know they don't point out which part of history they might become interested. Or you know, if you say you're an economist, understanding you study finance and markets, something called the economy. Um, invariably, when I tell people that I'm a sociologist, they tend to they either have a blank look. Or they will say something like, well, are, are, are you reading my mind? And I say, no, that's psychology. And, and psychology doesn't even do that. And so when you say you study society, it sounds so amorphous. That it doesn't really kind of make much sense. And then beyond that, when they would say, okay, well, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm, I'm interested in sports. That confirmed their prior suspicion that sociology was ridiculous. And somebody's studying sports. Now, what, a, what a strange and irrelevant thing to study seriously within a university. I don't get those same responses anymore. Not not for the past couple of months. In large part, I think thanks to Donald Trump, um, because when I tell people I'm interested in sports and politics and race, they, they immediately therefore refer to Trump and the Colin Kaepernick protests and NFL protests. So I think there has been a sea change more widely in terms of people now 
understanding a certain kind of almost like common sense level that sports are about power and they're about identity and there's about they're about finance and especially in the US they're overdetermined by nationalistic discourses and that these things are political yeah like who who plays and who pays you know these very basic questions around access and money and finance and who pays for stadiums and teams relocating and respecting the flag etc i think that's there's an important moment generally in which that barrier that divide between sports on the one hand and politics on the other has, has been broken down um and i think in large part there has been especially in the us i think driven in large part by the black lives matter social movement and the kind of period of obama's presidency whereby the supposed claim to have moved into a post racial society was proved to be a ridiculous assertion and the kind of atavistic uh, nationalistic xenophobic and racist tendencies that the republican party explicitly played with in a way which they hadn't if you go back to the you know the 2007 2008 election campaign you know when you had Sarah Palin um picked by the republicans purely because she could engender what became you know what we now refer to as the kind of the, the tea party element within the republican party when when she would refer to obama as you no know, not really being like you and me and palling around with terrorists and the and the whole birther movement that emerged during that time i think what happened then was with obama winning the election this liberal narrative got produced that those issues had been resolved but actually those who did see obama as being a muslim and palling around with terrorists they didn't go away and in many ways that was a kind of the context within which then donald trump emerges onto the scene and kind of utilizes and, and brings to the fore um many of those you no know, more explicitly you know white supremacist um and and reactionary tendencies within the american body politic alongside that of course therefore you have the pushback against that and and groups like black lives matter so in this highly racially and politically charged environment it's been interesting to see a number of athletes standing up being um emboldened if you like by the kind of rise in political consciousness and i think if you go back to 2012 i think it was when members of the mammy heat led by lebron james wore hoodies uh, in in support of Trayvon Martin and his family so Trayvon Martin was the young guy that was killed in Florida um not too far away actually from you know where um, the Miami Heat played um and then the Miami Heat did an Instagram photograph where they all wore hoodies because Trayvon Martin was wearing a hoodie at the time when he was killed by George Zimmerman do you have this kind of moment there where there's a there's a kind of a, I think an important break or rupture you know and it, and it's interesting that it's you no know, it's black NBA players who have a, a degree of relative power compared to other professional athletes in their sports and then soon afterwards you now with the kind of questions that black lives matter and other social activists were raising around um for example you know the 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 deaths of black people at the hands of police people like eric garner in in, in staten island in 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 new york and then shortly after that you saw none of the nba players wearing a, a jersey saying i can't breathe which was the last words of of eric garner um and that around that time you had protests by the St. Louis Rams uh, NFL players with their hands up don't shoot which was in response to the you know, the killing of a black youth in 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 uh, in St. Louis um you had this kind of red and WNBA players and you had this kind of interesting quite unprecedented kind of rise in political consciousness amongst professional athletes 
at the very highest levels and some of the most highly visible American sports. And then alongside that, college athletes and high school athletes also protesting. So I think in many ways, going back to your early question, like social media plays an important role in this kind of change and shift because you know you now have a situation where high school high schoolers can do a protest and LeBron James or Colin Kaepernick will retweet them and show a form of solidarity and thank them for taking a stand. So there's almost like an alternative public sphere, and in many ways, you know, people often refer to kind of black Twitter in in this way. And what that effectively means is there's an alternative public sphere outside of the mainstream media, outside of the ways in which formal political institutions tended to demark the public sphere. And in that space, I think there are forms of solidarity, sharing of ideas, um, and a new type of politics that's, that's emerged that sport has been swept up in. Now, I don't think sport is leading it. I think sometimes there's a it can be overplayed. But at certain moments, sports, I think, have been really pivotal in in articulating and helping to explain and to highlight some of these underlying social issues. And I don't know. And obviously, like, the awards and the kind of attention that have been given to Colin Kaepernick in, in recent weeks and months, I think, is a good example of that. I'd like to shift focus at this point and provide some context for the listeners as to why. Um, Ben wrote an essay that began live as a talk for a conference on Policing the Critique, Stuart Hall and the Practice of Critique, which was held in New York. Uh, Modelled on a chapter in a collection of essays by author and playwright Carol Phillips, Ben's essay is titled Living the Crisis Through Ten Moments. It was published in 2017 in issue 64 of Soundings, a journal of politics and culture, and I have everyone listening to read it. It's an autobiographical story told by Ben across time, and I found it insightful, sharply observed, and really quite beautiful in places. Ben, could you share the story of this essay and what's in it? Yeah, um, so I was um, invited to give a talk at Columbia University uh, um, about two years ago now. and the, the event was to commemorate and to, to acknowledge and to celebrate the legacy and work of Stuart Hall. And I'd, I'd kind of avoided doing those talks in, in part because I didn't know what I had to say that would be meaningful. Um, and I thought there were others that would have something you know, more interesting things to, to say and, and to write about Stuart Hall. Um, and partly, I think, also just because you know, Stuart Hall was a really important figure for me intellectually you know, as a... As a as a black kid from a working class background growing up in South London who had dreams of becoming a professional football player but didn't quite make it and found himself in the academy. Um, you know, the, 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 the British educational system isn't designed to celebrate and to embrace and to welcome black working class kids. If you're working class, certainly not. If you're black, certainly not. And if you're black and working class, you don't really have a space. So, so for me, discovering this area called cultural studies, which validated, understood, was interested in questions of working class culture, going back to the, to the, to the early writings of people like Richard Hoggett. Um, and then to discover that the leading figure in that field arguably was a, was a black guy from Jamaica who'd come over to England, um, was, was hugely influential for, for me and I think a whole generation of black British scholars, you know, who suddenly found ourselves not just as objects of sociological inquiry. In other words, no, you, you could find 
black bodies and black faces and black voices in, in the social textbooks, but as objects for study. Now, we were the people that were studied. We didn't do the study in. And I think Hall provided a model, if you like, an intellectual model of someone who 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 kind of challenged and disrupted those very kind of hackneyed stereotypes and cliches. And so, um, so another way to put it, one of my issues then when I was asked to speak was no thinking I was kind of too close to Hall, like what could I say that would be kind of meaningful? And I, and I, I, I went through my emails and I discovered this correspondence that I'd had with Stuart, you know, um, a couple of years before he passed away. And it just kind of, it, it was typically Stuart. In other words, I'd previously written an essay called uh, Improbable Grounds, um, which was about the kind of the formation of black British intellectuals. And I'd sent Stuart a, a copy and he very kindly responded and he didn't just do the usual response that even I catch myself doing sometimes, you know, which is like, thanks for the email. Thanks for you know, the, 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 the article and I'll get to it soon. All the best. He actually spent time in the midst of his dialysis treatment because he had um, kidney issues um, and then diabetes was you no know, to give me a really interesting uh, take on what it was like for him when he first came to England from Jamaica. And the question of his own identity as he became, as he refers to it, you know, he, uh, you know, he, he became a black intellectual in the diaspora. You know? So he, he, he and this, this sense of in the Caribbean, Stuart Hall wasn't considered to be black. But when he comes to Britain, he's sort of racialized as black. So he, he just reflected on his emergence as a black intellectual in the diaspora and what that had meant to him and a certain generation of West Indians. And so I use that as a starting point to think about the relationship between kind of biography and history between kind of like wider structures of power and our personal lives. And, now, and again, this is, and I think in many ways, actually, this is where I think someone like Stuart Hall can be read alongside someone like C. White Mills. I think there are striking resemblances between the kind of sociological projects of, of trying to always locate the biographical, the personal within the historical and, and the structural. And so that was the genesis of, th of thinking, well, maybe if I'm going to write something about Hall rather than writing you know, a critique of Hall's work on encoding, decoding, or, you know, his work on authoritarian populism, wouldn't it be more of a tribute to Hall to try to write inspired by Hall or to try to take up the challenge, I think, that's a way to think about it, the, the challenge that Hall poses to us, which is how can we do critical sociological work that always at the same time centres questions of power but isn't reduced to those kind of static overly positivistic kind of models of sociology in which the human side is completely you know um, disappears and so writing autobiographically is one way around that problem but of course the tension is not to write autobiographically in a way that kind of just dissolves into kind of like very narcissistic or solipsistic kind of reflections and so that was the challenge for me to say like is it possible for me to write a kind of like a eulogy a kind of a, a kind of a uh, uh, kind of a homage to Hall, but at the same time locates my own biography and does it in a critical way. And it takes seriously Hall's you know, insistence on thinking conjuncturally. You know, what, what is the historical conjuncture? What are the wider social forces, economic forces, political, cultural, um, that produce the moment and produce social change? And so that was the challenge. And then I came across this beautiful essay by Carol Phillips, um, in which he narrates his own life in 10 chapters or 10 short paragraphs. And so I basically stole Carol's format and kind of rewrote it in my own, uh, in my own um, voice. Um, and it's probably the most 
biographical piece I've ever written. It was really hard to write, even more harder to perform and to speak when I did it at the conference, especially because Catherine, Catherine Hall, Stuart's wife, was actually in the audience. Um, and of course, I get I, I'm able to smuggle in the fact that Liverpool Football Club is my favourite team, and I like I like the colour red. So, um, and of course, and something I haven't mentioned, it's also a kind of um, a letter to my mother as well. My, my mother um, passed away at a very early age. She was only 49. She died of cancer. And so I, I use that as an opportunity also to just kind of like to kind of to, to do the stuff that we're told not to do as academics. Yes, that we divorce our that, that our personal biography is bias, that subjectivity you know, equals um, uh, needs to be negated in favor of objectivity. And I think these are kind of false dichotomies. So the attempt was to write something that also move the audience. Yes, you know that we <laughs> the other thing we don't do as academics is really give a toss a concern, have much of a concern for the audience and who's reading it. You know, we you don't think about prose very often. You don't think about you know the, the cadence of a sentence. So it was actually, actually a form of writing which I wanted to show that actually maybe it's possible to take prose seriously, to think about the effective, and to do something that's kind of critical and analytical at the same time. Um, and I'll leave it to others to judge whether or not it, it worked. Um. Oh well, look, I I applaud you for it. I thought it was uh, wonderful, and I I very rarely, I think what I'm, this must be episode twenty eight. I don't think I've ever pretty much, yeah, I'd almost like to set it as a compulsory reading for everyone, just because of the way it plays with the the sort of broader historical moment in which you live through, mm-hmm. connects it to a cultural studies project, um, but also. Uh, and I think it, I, I can understand why it was difficult to write because it does expose something personal um, and emotion, of course, and indeed things like love uh, very rarely appear in academic work. Um, which brings me to the question about how was it received when you delivered it? I mean, what was the response of the audience? Because it is an unusual, it is an unusual article. Yeah, and it was strange as much as I delivered it. I was on the panel with Barnard Hesse. And if anyone's familiar with the work of Barnard Hesse, he's a, I, I strongly recommend you, you, you check out Barnard Hesse's work. He's a, a political scientist from the UK. Um, he did his PhD under Ernesto Laclau, the, the well-known Argentinian political scientist. Um, Stuart Hall was actually Barnard's PhD um, examiner. You know, for his, his work. Um, and Barnard now works at Northwestern University in, in the States in political science and African American studies. Barnard is incredibly theoretical. I mean, he's a theorist. Now, he, his work is deep and dense and difficult and rewarding and brilliant. And so, being on a panel where Barnard does his uh, typical kind of theoretical kind of critique, and then I was also on a panel with Carla Holloway, the well known African American um, black studies and premise scholar. So I was alongside two very prominent black studies academics in this kind of very formal setting. And I, before I gave the paper, I actually went up to Catherine and said, this is going to be very a personal reflection on Stuart. And I, if you want, if you leave, that's not a problem. I, I, I would understand that, you know, if you decide that it's just too close to, you know, speaking about someone that you, know, you cared and loved and, and lived with for many years and you want to leave, I, I, that's fine. Um, it's the only talk that I've given whereby I there's there's a point I, without giving that away for those who haven't read it that um, the, towards the end I I, ref, I, you know, I recall the moment when Stuart Hall passes away and and the 
the effective dimensions of the performance of the piece were really striking because as I got close to the one that the, you know, the, the, the talk is given in 10 moments, so I think it's moment nine when I when it emerges that Stuart Hall has passed away. I realized I was about to about to break down crying and I couldn't say the words Stuart Hall dies. I think well, there's a video on it, of it on, 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 online and I, I either don't say the word Stuart Hall died or I change it to say that he passed away or I skipped it. I, I literally couldn't say the words, which was quite remarkable. Um, and I had to pause and stop myself because I think if I'd have carried on, I would have broken down crying. And um, anyone that knows me, like, <laughs> I don't tend to be too emotional, so you don't cry in public. Um, and here I was <laughs> amongst these really significant scholars, um, almost on the verge of breaking down. And in some ways, uh, and going back to your previous point, I think that that moment of vulnerability was really important. And it wasn't staged, I didn't plan to do it. It was personally, it was very kind of awkward, but I'm. I'm glad I wrote it in that way. I'm glad I delivered it in, in that way. And, and in many ways, I th- you're right to some degree that that notion of vulnerability is very rare within academia. But, you know, if, if we've learned anything from the, the insights of feminism, it's for, like, you know, like male scholars like me and, and, and others to to take those types of risks in our work and our writing to to really think through you know, in, in a different context. You know, this is what we're going through right now in this is hopefully, hopefully, a kind of rethinking of male power, male privilege in the context of Me Too and the sexual harassment claims, you know, that that, that men taking up the position of the vulnerable can be a site of learning and a site of analysis and a site of, of insight, whereas it tends to get read as, quote, mere emotion and you, and you lose the analytical insights. Um, so, you know, although it wasn't planned in that way, I think I'm, I'm it's one of the most, it's, I've, I think I'm mo- more proud of that essay than any other thing that, that I've written, precisely because I took some risks in my writing, um, tried to do something that was a bit different from what's expected. Um, and the reaction to it's been very good. So in the audience at the time, there, there was a really nice reaction. Catherine came up to me after and said she, she loved it. She th- thought Stuart would have liked it. So... But that meant a lot to me in that moment, you know, for Catherine herself to come up and say that uh, it meant a lot to her and that she thought Stuart would have liked what I did. Um, I think more than anything else, that, that was that was really touching. And I've, of course, issued everyone with um, instructions to go read the essay, but a question for you. Could you recommend, say, a, a book that you think listeners should read at this moment? It may be something to do with your research at this point. It may be something sitting outside that. Well... I've I've just started to read Familiar Stranger, A Life Between Two Islands, which is Stuart Hall's kind of memoir. In, and um, so I, I and I, I think that would be like a, a nice segue. I think Hall's Hall didn't really write that much. Didn't really write biographically a whole lot. He would, he would allude to his biography and his, his own background, but he didn't really unpack it. So. There's this new book being published by Duke University Press called Familiar Stranger, A Life Between Two Islands. Um, I'd, I'd highly recommend that. And I've also um, picked up and started to read uh, Sarah Ahmed's um, uh, um, Feminism of Life, I think it's the title. Um, uh, I think Sarah Ahmed's work is, is, is really great. And, and um, yeah, her, her new book, I, I, I think it's called A Feminist Life by Sarah Ahmed, is something that I would um, also uh 
living a feminist life. That's it. Living a feminist life by Sarah Arnold. Um, I'm, I'm kind of reading those two kind of like side by side. And again, again maybe this is a consequence of m me writing that previous essay that was more kind of biographical is that um, it's you know, trying to kind of think through the productive aspects of engaging our questions about our own kind of sense of self and our own biography and and not kind of relegating them not not pushing them so far out of the of the analytical frame that we produce these kind of really sterile accounts um so i i i, I I'd, I'd recommend those yeah. i think that's a, a a really nice point to finish on given the the connection between your essay and those 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 books and ben it's been a pleasure speaking with you and i thank you for your contribution to the media sport podcast series thank you thank you for the questions i really enjoyed the conversation